Chris Ballard wrote about a small-town high school baseball team from rural Illinois. Playing with peace signs on their hats, they defied convention and odds. Led by an English teacher with no coaching experience, the Macon Ironmen made an improbable run to the state final where they represented the smallest school since 1948 to advance to the championship, a distinction that still stands. There they would play a Chicago powerhouse in a game that would change their lives forever. Just like the movie Hoosiers, this true story of a team and its coach, Lynn Sweet, who was a hippie, a dreamer, and an intellectual whose progressive ideas shook up the conservative town. Beloved by the students, but not the administration, Sweet reluctantly took over the ragtag team, intent on teaching the boys as much about life as baseball. The book is titled One Shot at Forever, and the author and senior writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Ballard, joins me next on the Athlete One podcast. Behind the scenes with athletes and coaches. This is Athlete One Podcast with Ken Carpenter. Joining me today on the Athlete One Podcast is Chris Ballard. He's an editor, a feature writer at Sports Illustrated, and lecturer at the University of California Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Chris, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. You got it. All right. Well, hey, Chris, I I reached out to you uh, a while back uh, about uh, your book, One Shot at Forever, but you've actually uh, written four books, the, the Art of a Beautiful Game, One Shot at Forever, Hoops Nation, A Guide to America's Best Pickup Basketball, and The Butterfly Hunter, uh, The Adventures of people who found their true calling way off the beaten path. Now, I've been a high school baseball coach for the past 24 years and and really, really enjoyed your One Shot at Forever book. Can you tell the uh, the listeners what this uh, true story is about? Yeah, it's, it's about a small town in Illinois, Macon, Illinois, which is not that far from Decatur. Uh, and, and a high school baseball team in the early 70s, back when there weren't uh, divisions in high school baseball. So if you had 200 kids in your high school and you made the state playoffs, you would play a, a school like Lane Tech that had 5,200. And so this particular book uh, deals with a very Hoosiers-esque-like story about this the team, the Ironmen, making Illinois, and their, their coach, Lynn Sweet, who is a English teacher who hadn't really done much coaching at all and sort of coerced into into taking on this team. Uh, and there's some backlash from the town, which is stuck in the Eisenhower era. And they don't like his newfangled ways, both as a teacher and a coach. He tended not to be a authoritarian coach. He tended to empower his players. And he said, if you guys want to steal, just steal. And why don't you pick your own positions? And this really, really caught on with the boys. And they started um, uh, a winning streak and then kept going. And they end up making the state playoffs. And, end up becoming the smallest school to make the state baseball finals in the history of Illinois. Wow. That's an uh, amazing story. And it's, it's like you said, basically uh, the Hoosiers version yeah. of baseball. I had an opportunity to play college baseball in Alabama. And one of the, I, I guess from reading the book, the, the best player on that team was uh, Steve Schartzer and he happened to be an assistant coach at the college I played for at Huntington College. And 
I loved how competitive he was as a coach, but I had no idea about his story in high school until reading your book. And what was your impression of him as far as when it came to winning and losing? Steve is, you know, at Sports Illustrated, I've ended up covering a lot of very, very successful and competitive athletes over uh, the course of about two decades, you know, Kobe Bryant and Tim Duncan and LeBron James and uh, and various people. Uh, Charger was right there with him as far as his competitive fire. Um, you know, they uh, they they go on this tournament run. Charger graduates from from the high school. He ends up being drafted into the minors. Uh, spends a little time in the minors. Doesn't make the majors. Um, but by the time I wrote this book, which was a good forty years later. Um, Steve was still thinking about that tournament and thinking about plays in that tournament and still blaming himself for plays in that tournament, feeling like he'd let this team and this town down, um, which I found remarkable. A lot of the other players saw this as one of the sort of the, the highlights of their life or sort of this really cool story from their childhood. Steve was still living it. Uh, and it actually took a while to get him to agree to an interview first for the story I wrote for Sports Illustrated and then for the book. Uh, he just didn't want to talk about it. He hadn't been back to making he he didn't want to relive these memories the way so many people do. And even when I got him, it was, I think it was like an IHOP um, down where it was in Alabama. And he basically said, I'm talking about this. I'm talking about it once. So you got, you know, you got two hours go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow. And, and it, you know, Steve, so, you know, he, you know, he's, he's a no BS guy, but he's also got this, you know, he, sadly he's passed away now, but he had this warm heart. Um, and he just had this real charisma to him as well. And this, this confidence that just oozed out of him and you could tell. And so he became to me, I think, uh, like the most compelling character in that, in that book. Are you looking to upgrade your baseball or softball facility? Then look no further than the netting professionals. They provide the highest quality products and services to many high school, college and professional fields and facilities throughout the country. Batting cages, backstop netting, protective L screens, windscreen, ball carts, and so much more. Contact them today at 844-620-2707. That's 844-620-2707. Or shoot them an email at nettingpros.com. You can check out all their products and services at www.nettingpros.com. You can also follow them on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Netting Professionals for all the latest products and projects. In all of your years of both playing sports and covering sports, have you ever come across a coach like Coach Lynn Sweet? No, and you know, I think one of the remarkable things is one of the players on that team is Brian Snicker who went on to have this uh, winding uh, career himself. He never never made the bigs, but he played minor league ball for the Braves and ended up latching on as a roving instructor. And as it turns out, I actually uh, wrote a story about Brian that came out last month. I've been hoping to be able to do that at some point. But he ended up, uh, any baseball fan, so becoming the manager of the Braves after this long journey of just grinding it out, getting called up and called down and managing these minor league teams. And and so, I mean, he's, he's overlapped with Hank Aaron and Dale Murphy and, and pretty much any any most baseball players you could name over the last uh, thirty or forty years, um, and uh, he said when he tells this story about Macon to other big leaguers, like they're amazed, like no one's no one's had an experience like he had. I think it, it really was singular, and I think Sweet was a large part of that. 
Yes, he was uh, – his style of, of just letting the players decide where they wanted to play and if they wanted to steal. And I I don't think I've come across in my 24 years of coaching anyone that's even close to that. But I think he was more about the the relationships and the, the life experience that he was uh, providing, I guess. Yeah, he's, he's, he's like the – the I guess the the ethos of of Lynn Sweet was that the game should be fun, and now a, a lot of times if you took the fun out of it, if you took out the camaraderie, if you took out the joy from the game, um, and at the time this was certainly not how uh, high school games were played. Um, if, you, if you took that out of it, it, you know it might affect your performance. But then what was the point of playing it? And so I think that was, I think that's part of why the players responded to him like that is. They they loved it. They had a great time. You know, they played rock music as they warmed up, and and they wore peace signs on their hats. Uh, and they became this sort of traveling circus of sorts, where other teams just couldn't figure out who they were. And Lynn Sweet grew out his hair and had this big Fu Manchu mustache. And what an amazing experience to have if you're you know a young man in high school, um, just just becoming part of a, a team that that um, where you feel like a tribe. I think that was probably. You know, all teams, I'm sure you had that experience too. You, you get some of that, but I think this was an authentic, authentic tribe. Yes, there's no no doubt with that. Now he was, um, he also, uh, the town kind of didn't really uh, take to him real well in the administration, and he kind of did things his way. Yes, yes, he, did. he didn't really care uh, that the, the town didn't like him. So you know, they they decided uh, after the after the first good season they had uh, to fire Lynn. You know, he was he was not doing things the way they'd been done. You know, this was a school where um, uh, teachers routinely paddled the students in the early seventies. They they would have their paddles hanging up on the wall. You know, the board of education, this kind of thing, just corporal punishment. Um, and you know, the football coach who was one of his friends, uh, you know, it's like just yelling at players and cussing at players. And, and here comes sweet, not only empowering players, but, but sweet didn't want to teach the way that the school wanted him to teach. He thought I'm going to read, you know, I have the kids read Aldous Huxley. I'm going to have them, uh, you know, if they read the comics, that's fine with me because at least they're picking up a newspaper. You know, if you want to do your report on popular mechanics, that's fine with me. As long as you're reading and you're passionate about it. And these are some ideas that you might see, you know, more common today, but certainly not in 1970 in in Macon. And so there was you know, the backlash was pretty strong. He was from, you know, he was a Democrat from uh, Chicago. He was a hippie, so there was a lot a lot not to like. And and you know, in a very Hoosiers esque way, um, the team and the parents from the team were the ones that stopped him from uh, from getting fired. And it was actually Dick Snicker, Brian's father. Uh, who, who led the push to keep Lynn on. Now, Coach Snicker, you just did a, a cover story for Sports Illustrated about the, the Braves manager and how he took him 40 years to get to where he is now. Did he happen to talk much about how Coach Sweet played a role in, in his managerial style? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I first interviewed uh, – Brian, when he was uh, he was with the Braves as a third base coach back in 2011, he hadn't become the manager yet. Um, you know, and, and at the time, some of the, some of what he recalled about Sweet and, and the impact on him was was different than it is now. Uh, I thought it's now that now that he's become a big league manager, but I think the, the one of the things that he, he really has taken away is the way that Lynn um, trusted the players. 
Uh, and this is something that Brian, if you watch how he manages the Braves, he's a player's manager. Um, you know, there's a, there was a moment in, in reporting the story about Brian Snicker where everyone pointed to it. And it was when uh, Acuna Jr. got beaned on the first pitch of the game against the Marlins. And Snicker comes running out there and he is irate and he has to be, they got to hold him back and he's going bonkers. And he was the, he just sort of, he was this interim manager. He was supposed to be like a, a holding pattern. So they got a real manager in there. I think the players saw him going out there, having the back of his players, um, that same tribe mentality. So I think, you know, that's what he says he got from Lynn was this idea that, Hey, trust these guys, you know, um, right. give them, give them, empower them, you know, give them a chance to make mistakes, give them a chance to, to be who they are. Now, six of the stories uh, have been optioned for film that you've written. Can Are you able to share the six stories as far as not necessarily tell us all about them, but the, yeah, yeah. The potential titles, I guess? Uh, well, this was uh, the story uh, in Sports Illustrated that became this book. And then this book was one of them. Um, and that... Uh, sort of went down the road to become a movie. And then as happens in the business, uh, things stalled. And now it's, um, it might, it might get option again. You never know. I've learned that about the industry. I wrote a story about, um, uh, a collegiate rower, a young woman at Cal, uh, that got optioned and a, another high school baseball story called morning glory about Williamsport, Maryland. Uh, that's maybe in development. Um, a story about a fascinating story about skydiving, and uh, a very heroic act by uh, this this skydiving instructor that tied him to his um, his client uh, essentially for life. And if you look it up, you'll see. Um, uh, but yeah, and so that's uh, one of the things I've always tried to do is find these human stories that that are about more than sports. And I guess that's maybe that's why they have a cinematic appeal. Yes, and I believe it or not, I. I actually was in a movie called Gibsonburg, and it's a story about a high school team here in Ohio who uh, won the state championship with a losing record. They they were just terrible, and all of a sudden they got to the tournament and made a run and ended up uh, winning the whole state championship. And you know, so wow. that was a that was a great story that was told there. But uh, you know, the other thing that really jumped out to me when I was researching. You know, I, I've read your one shot at forever, but um, can you share how you gathered your information for your book, Hoops Nation? It's a guide to America's <laughs> best pickup basketball. Yeah, that was that was the most fun I've ever had. So that was right out of college. Uh, and I went to a small college outside of Los Angeles and, and played a little bit of Division three basketball. And basketball has always been my love the way that it sounds like baseball is for you. Uh, so I had this idea after college to. I just love playing pickup basketball. Um, and uh, one of my sports writing idols, Alex Wolf, had written a book uh, 20 years earlier where he'd gone around and, and tried to find the best, you know, playground basketball courts in the country. And I wrote to Alex and I was like, hey, you know, what if what if I tried to do the same thing? Uh, he was, you know, have at it, uh, you know, and I was about 22 at the time. So I convinced um, two, two of my college teammates and my brother who'd played uh, division three ball as well. And, you know, got a, got an old used van passenger van and my dad helped me put a bed in the back. So if we needed to crash there, we could. And we went across the country, um, staying at, at KOA campgrounds and, uh, went to 166 cities in the 48 contiguous States, just playing basketball and looking 
for the most interesting games, the best games, uh, the best stories, the best characters in this whole subculture. And it's sadly, it's it's changed a lot and died down um, since then. This is 1996, but there was still like a really thriving pickup scene where you, I mean, we had, you would show up at a gym and some rec center in um, Michigan and there would be Lindsey Hunter, an NBA player showing up to just play ball, right? Uh, you'd be in New York and you'd have NBA players just showing up to play ball. And it was really cool sort of permeable membrane be- between just random guys or regular guys um, and then and NBA players. And that was part of it. And then part of it, of course, was just the, I find, I, I, I find you can learn a lot about people by playing basketball with them. Uh, it sort of reveals character in a way. Um, and so that was also really interesting to go across the country and see the cultures and the traditions in each place. Well, you, you know, it's it's really funny because my previous guest was uh, the head baseball coach at Denison University, and his name is Mike Deegan, and he grew up in Washington, Pennsylvania, and he talked about the life lessons he learned from playing pickup basketball, even though he was a, you know, he went on to be a great college baseball player yeah but he he really talks about how it, he learned so much from playing pickup basketball yeah it, it is um you know i've met uh people who who say they the way they test out you know ceos who say the way they test out someone if they're considering hiring them is they go play pickup ball with them because you know someone can present one way in a job interview for 45 minutes or they can you know write an essay or or look good in the meeting but, you know, you'll find out who they really are if you go play an hour of pickleball with them. You know, are they, that, are, they, are they unselfish? Do they hustle? Do they call ticky-tack fouls? Do they get really flustered? Do they get really angry? I mean, like, you can, you can see a lot about who someone is at their core in that setting. Oh, there's, there's, that's definitely a, a great uh, thing that I could probably mention to my wife who – all she does is go out and hire people with her job. So maybe I, I don't know if she'd be able to pick up <laughs> basketball. But uh, yeah, what were um, the, in your opinion, what were the top five courts that, based on how your book went, that you thought? So we we, we actually included a top five in there uh, and did it partly to represent some of these famous courts. So West Fourth Street in New York is it was our number one. It's probably the most famous court in uh in, in the country it's a it's an actual cage in downtown new york city uh i mean it's a cage in court but they call it the cage and it's one of these places where you can walk by and there's there's tourists and there's locals and there's artists and they're all hanging out off and watching the game and sometimes it might be a pretty scrappy game but the history of that place and these legends that have played there um it's uh, you know if you're a player it's one of those places you got to go so the history and the lore is so strong there. And then one of the other ones is Rucker Park, which is not that far away in uptown um, New York uh, as a subway right away, which is obviously in a home of the Rucker Park and, you know, Joyce Irvin and Connie Hawkins and, and all these, uh, the goats, you know, Earl Manigote, um, all these playground legends. Um, and then at the time there was a place in Houston, I don't even know if it's still open, but Fondy Rec Center. And that was where all the, the really good Texas players would converge, especially in the Houston area. Uh, in the summers and back in the day, you know, you might see Hakeem Olajuwon uh, coming through there. Uh, and um, and one of the things I loved was uh, was finding these places, and you, it was like a secret code to get in. Uh, and then when one of the other ones we featured was actually called the Run and Shoot. Um, and I think that was in Atlanta, right? Atlanta. Uh, it was open twenty four hours a day, which back then was amazing. So 
along with my two buddies, we decided to stay there for 24 hours, which turns out is a long time to, to be in a gym. Uh, but it is just yeah. like court, court after court and games. Um, and, it, you know, if you were in your 20s and you could play all day like we could back then, it was a pretty magical experience. In your book, The Butterfly Hunter, I, I can relate to how you described your own failure at selling vacuums. And I, myself, I joined the Army after being told I didn't have enough experience to work at McDonald's. And I finished second for a job where I would be pumping gas and cleaning windshields. So I, I even went the route of selling vacuums, waterbeds, worked in hotels. <laughs> Before becoming my wife, getting married, and my wife saying, you need to lock in and get your college stuff done, and I end up becoming a teacher and a baseball coach. Um, how did you go about your personal story as far as starting to to write for Sports Illustrated and, and all the great books that you've put out? Uh, I really got fortunate. It was, a, it was a good time in the media industry, which has changed so much since then. So I was able to uh, write this, the pick a basketball book right out of um, uh, college, which was uh, sort of a fluke, mainly mainly because uh, I, you know, basically offered to to drive around the whole country for seven months and do all this research. Uh, and they said, sure, we'll give you like this tiny advance to do that. And then once I'd done that, I was able to get into the graduate school of journalism uh, at Columbia. And then via that, at the time, one of these uh, sort of legendary Sports Illustrated editors, Sandy Padway, uh, was teaching there as well. And so every year he would recommend a student or two to Sports Illustrated. And, and so I started there in 2000 and you started as a fact checker back then and you worked your way up. So it was a really um, uh, hard work, but a really good learning experience. Wow. That's, that's uh, amazing that uh, you put out such great stuff and, and it's really fun to watch. Now you, you touched on, um, you, you've had a chance to, work with some special athletes and, and talk to them who, if, if you had a couple of one or two that would jump out in your mind is you, you're just amazed at how good of an athlete they, they really were. Well, when, when you're talking about pro athletes, uh, you know, as you, as you can imagine, I think the ones that always, the, the, the biggest shocks to me were always the ones that when you watch them on TV, they didn't seem like an amazing athlete, mainly by comparison, right? Because they were playing alongside these other uh, ridiculous specimens. So I, I remember going to, for example, um, Orlando Magic training camp many years ago and talking to their trainer. And it turned out, you know, they had Dwight Howard at the time in his heyday when he was winning dunk contests. And it turned out that J.J. Redick, who everyone thought of as this sort of annoying guy who shot threes from, from Duke, who was in the NBA at the time, actually had a higher vertical leap than Dwight Howard. And this was uh, something that Reddick loved wow. to needle to needle Howard about, but you would never think that, right? You never see that in the game, no. um, you know. Uh, so it, it was always little things like that. I think Steve Nash was probably one of the greatest athletes I ever covered, because it all depends on how you define athleticism and his um, his balance and his ability to shift direction and his hand eye coordination. All those other elements of athleticism as opposed to the, the most obvious ones, you know, speed and, and leaping in basketball. Uh, it was remarkable. Like if you, you know, you could play step, step Curry, the same way you could play anything, you go play darts, you could play billiards, you could, you could play golf. And, and those two guys would just immediately be good at it. All right. Well, let me ask you this. Are you working on any new books or upcoming stories for, for SI that, uh, that uh, we as uh, readers would look forward to. 
Yeah, I've got one that I think is coming out in about a month and a half. We, the magazine comes out eight times a year now. And it's about the um, – uh, I'm 47, so it's definitely driven by uh, personal narrative. But sort of this idea of trying to, to hold on and keep playing the sport you love as long as possible. You know, and you know, we see Tom Brady doing it. And, uh, you know, in the, the recent Olympics, there was a 46-year-old uh, gymnast, female gymnast. And there's all these great examples. But, of course, they have access to all these – you know, the, uh, not only the great genetics, but have access to the best equipment and care and, and the time and money to implement it. And so I sort of went on a quest of interviewing scientists and researchers and athletes. And I talked to Steve Kerr, who had a you know, sort of a tough experience after retiring to, to look into this idea for the quest to keep holding on to our athletic, the athletic part of our life as long as we can. Chris, I, I, I can't thank you enough. I, I know you're on a tight schedule and I, I could sit and talk to you all night, but, uh, Wish you continued success and really look forward to uh, everything that you're going to put out in the future with Sports Illustrated and with the books that you uh, continue to write. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, and good luck with the podcast. It's really cool you're doing this. All right. Well, thank you, sir. And take care. Thanks for listening to the Athlete One Podcast. Check out some of our previous episodes featuring great coaches and athletes who take you behind the scenes. Also, you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Athlete One Podcast. A big thank you again to our new sponsor, Netting Professionals. Follow them on Instagram and LinkedIn for all of their latest products. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining.